Um, so there's there's always a few dangerous weeks in my preparation where like Thursday things take a right turn, you know, from from what I was planning on on, on speaking, and and this is one of those weeks. Um, the the topic for this morning was the the kingdom of God is in, is in conflict, and it, it's a pretty well known, you know, not not trope, but it's a pretty well-known theological point, right? There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of this world, there's the kingdom of darkness, and they're in conflict. Th- this is a true sermon. Sometimes, the, the worst, I'll tell you this, the worst is when I've been preparing a sermon and then I read the scripture, I'm like, oh no, I was wrong. <laughs> true story, that has happened before. Wonderful thing, because we always need to submit to that, but this wasn't one of those. That, that That's a perfectly fine sermon. I could preach that sermon. I believe that sermon. I don't think that's what the Lord has to say for us. It might have been predictable, um, but you could probably fill in those details, right? If I say the kingdom of God's in conflict, there's kings in this world, you know where it goes from there, right? Um, we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Our battle's not, though, against flesh and blood. It was going to have nuance and stories. You would have laughed. You would have loved it. Great sermon. The thing is, I, I don't want us to preach this morning about the enemy. You know, he's real. I believe in that stuff. I've seen that stuff. But I I do think that sometimes there's so much Christian preoccupation with Satan and demons, then I think it's unhealthy for us. And we begin fascination with the abomination. We we begin to be drawn towards these things because it's a good story and it's fun and it fills us with these these ideas and even this fear and it can really get people, get your heart pumping and, and, and deal with these things. And I think it makes us think, too, that there's a war between two equal parties. You know, light side and dark side of the force. You know, we've seen Star Wars, you know, yin and yang, whatever you want to fill in. That's not the way that this war goes. Because the kingdom of God's in conflict doesn't mean that there's like two equal sides here that are meeting on a battlefield. We don't know what's going to happen. We need to to lay down those understandings. See, it would have been a good sermon. (laughs) But that's not the sermon for us. God took me to Genesis 32. And then to Matthew 11. And I'm going to be preaching those in, in, in reverse order. So instead of talking about the kingdom of God in conflict, I'm calling this instead just a kingdom conflict. Um, before I get into that, though, I want to acknowledge that we don't really like to struggle. We don't like conflict. We have conflict r- resolution classes. We have skills that we teach. We have medication to try to ease us so that we don't have to struggle through things. I feel like I'm right on the verge of feedback, by the way. I don't know if we can maybe get the monitors down just a little bit. Um, We have all these ways that we want to try to avoid conflict because it's not comfortable for us. Because there's something in my flesh that just wants to avoid. Now, there are some people, I think, who are drawn (laughs) towards conflict and they enjoy the fight. But that's a sermon for a different day as well. But, you know, I think a lot of us, we feel like we want to be maybe that, that trust fund baby, complete with a silver spoon that's, that's in our mouth, right? That it, we don't have to struggle through life. We don't have to worry about where our next paycheck's going to come from. We don't have to, to deal with questions and, and doubt. Everything we need is, is pr- provided for us. It took me a really long time to get going in my adult life. And what I mean by that is I felt like once I graduated from college, I'm done, right? <laughs> I don't have to learn anymore, right? I don't have to be tested anymore, right? I can just kind of enjoy all the fruits of my labor, you know? And and so I didn't want to read. I didn't want to learn. I I thought, like, I could just put that all kind of down and go into a career and, you know, retire in five, ten years. You know, wouldn't that be nice? It took me a while to realize that's not how this world works. 
In fact, not only is that not how this world works, that's also not how I want my life to go. Because when we, start gro- when we stop being challenged, when we no longer struggle through things, we stop learning them. I've used this example a whole lot. I will Google in any given week probably a thousand different things. I work in IT. I have to look up programming things. You know, like I, I use Google a lot. You know how much of that stuff I retain? So little. Because <laughs> there's no, I'm not learning things from it. I'm looking it up. It's just an index guide. You know, it's like you flip to the back where the answers are. You ever get the teacher's edition when you're in school and you feel like you got the gold mine because you have the answers in the back? And you look it up, you're like, the answer to 12 is C. What's that mean? I don't know, but it's C and we can fill it in, we get the right answer. And we live life without the struggle, without challenging ourselves, and we just try to skate through without getting there. So before you make any assumptions, know this isn't a sermon about the value of suffering. (laughs) It's not a sermon about the necessity of the baby bird to break through the egg or doesn't get developed. Again, fine points. That's not where we're going this morning. But let's jump into this with a bit of, of Matthew. We used Matthew last week, Matthew 11, to talk about the kingdom of God being at hand. That was our our topic last time, right? That the kingdom of God is at hand. It's something in this present time. We can see it, we can proclaim it, and we can practice it. And Matthew 11 was a way that we got to talk about that. In Matthew 10, Jesus says it explicitly, the kingdom is at hand. You can see the evidence of it. So when John's disciples came and they said, are you the Messiah, or are we supposed to look for someone else? He says, what do you see? Do you see this, that the lame are, are walking, you know, that the blind can see? Like, there's evidence all around us. The kingdom of God is at hand, and you can tell by all of this stuff. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Recognize it, proclaim it, and practice it. It's not something that you have to squint your eyes and, and try to make out, and it's not a riddle we have to try to solve and, and flex your intellectual muscle to try to see, yeah, I can understand how you could say theologically that maybe in certain circumstances the kingdom of God is present. That's not what Jesus was proclaiming. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the evidence. Practice it. Know it. Live in the reality of the kingdom of God here. Matthew eleven twelve though, takes in a bit of, a, of, of another direction that we want to go this morning. So here, I'm going to read this in, in a bit of context. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time of John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. 
For before John came, all the prophets in the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. So yeah, John's in prison. He's struggling. <laughs> He's in conflict. His disciples are a bit put off. They're a bit confused because God's the deliverer, right? He's the Messiah, right? <laughs> Why is John in prison? In fact, if you understand this, it could even be his cousin as we understand some of the, the, the stories about this. So how does this make any sense? Jesus, deliver him. <laughs> Jesus, break him free. If you're the king, if you're the deliverer, if you're the Messiah, if there's a struggle, if there's a conflict, resolve it, please, right? You could see this as, as, a, as a claim for them trying to say, break John out of prison. We know this isn't right. He's in there because he was preaching the word. He's in there because he preached it to some people who didn't like to hear it. So they locked him up. And they're going to behead him. Where's the justice? You know, if you don't know struggle in life, God bless you. That probably means you're associated more with the powerful than the powerless. Because this kingdom, the, the kingdom of, of this world is opposed to a kingdom that lifts up the poor, the repressed, the broken lost right if, if, if you don't understand that may you use your advantages may you use your power as Christ himself did to do these things but whenever you're in prison whenever you're locked up whenever you are powerless to do anything for yourself I think John's query makes perfect sense right <laughs> I, I did nothing wrong <laughs> where's this deliverer where's this messiah Jesus are you the one I'm supposed to be looking for? Or is there somebody else who's going to come in here with a pair of keys and get me out of here? Hear me, church. I'm still not preaching the kingdom has come and coming, the now and the not yet. I'll get there, but not yet. That's, that's still a future week. But for our focus this week, we're actually going to look at Matthew 11:12, 12, a very difficult passage. Again, where it says, From the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. One of my least favorite things is when pastors go into the Greek. <laughs> I'm going to go into the Greek a little bit. <laughs> Simply because this is such a hard, it's a weird verse, y'all, right? Can you understand, like, why this is hard, why this is understanding? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through a pretty quick study of this. I did study Greek, so I'm somewhat authorized to talk about this. Um, but I, I, I Googled it, so, you know, I, you, you can trust it. Uh, <laughs> not sure if I learned it, but I did look it up. I'm joking. Um, the Greek can mean two different things here. The, the technical term is that there's a, a middle or a passive voice. What that means is you can actually translate this being true to the Greek, that the kingdom of God is both subject to force or it's the agent of force. Are you with me so far? That means it's either people are attacking against it or it's the one doing the attacking. It goes both ways whenever you read this. So, you have to make a decision when you're translating this. Well, what makes a lot of sense? What, what is going on with this? When we bring this into the English where we have to make this distinction, we have to clarify it some way. So depending on what translation you have, it may differ from the person next to you depending on what they're trying to bring out from the text. Neither, I would say, is going to be wrong, but it's going to paint a picture in a slightly different way. You know, you see the corner of a house, you see the front of a house. It's going to allow you to see things slightly different. Right off the bat, though, you probably think, well, the kingdom of God isn't going to be an agent of force, right? That, do, we, do we see the, the angels and, and, and the, the, the church itself now taking up swords and going to attack the, the, the governments of this world? Is that in Scripture? We don't, we don't see that. So we end up with a, a translation like we have in the, the King James Version, the ESV and the NRSV. I've got these up here. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence, the violent take it by force, ESV. Same idea, right? We see this in the same translations that, that it's suffering violence, and the violence are taken by force. It fits well with the rest of the saying that the violent take it by force. It suggests that the kingdom is under siege and that we're being attacked. And we can kind of get behind that, but on deeper reflection, it, it kind of raises some questions. So if you're with me so far, the kingdom of God can't be taken by force, can it? I put these questions up here because hopefully you're thinking about these. The kingdom of God can't be taken by force. If the gates of hell, as it says in Matthew 16, 18, can't prevail against the kingdom, how can the kingdom of God ever be taken by force? It kind of then leaves you in a place again where you're thinking, all right, again, what does this passage mean? So maybe we change it again. Maybe we think of the kingdom as being the agent of, of, of force. There's very few translations that go that way, but you do get it in, in the NLT. It says, from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. So they change a little bit, but it still makes sense, right? So it's now the agent of force. It's forcefully advancing. And so maybe Herod is the violent person who in persecution of John is attacking the kingdom of God, trying to take it by force. Maybe the opposition that John and Jesus are facing are the violent people who are attacking the kingdom but where are we going with this? What, what's the point of this even? If you look in the context of Matthew 11, it's not the violent people attacking the kingdom. Because from the start, as we saw with John the Baptist, he has doubts, right? John the Baptist is struggling in jail, and he's sending his disciples trying to figure out what in the world's going on. This isn't the game plan that I signed up for. There's a struggle. There's a, a conflict here. That doesn't make sense if you are the Messiah. The context is about the rejection of the kingdom. The frame is doubt and the lack of faith. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully coming and the forceful grab hold of it. Allow me just to, to tweak it one more time, putting it a bit more the neutral, and I think this is going to help. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully coming, and the forceful seize it. They grab it. They take hold of it. This explains the lame walking. This explains the blind seeing. This explains the kingdom of God breaking through. And yet, and yet, Jesus is saying, and yet, the kingdom is being met with doubt and questioning. Even as it's breaking through, we still don't see it. Even with these things happening, there's people who don't understand what's happening. We don't recognize it. Even John was starting to waver. So Jesus declares the kingdom is advancing. The army is on the move. So now is the time, he is saying, to forcefully seize this opportunity. Now is the day. Now is, now is the moment when we want to do something about this because this is what we see. John started something going, and now we see the kingdom forcefully coming. Let's get on board with this. Let's follow this thing out to its logical conclusion. Let's see what God is going to do amidst all of this. That's not... <laughs> Apple TV likes to do things sometimes with us. Um, Sadly, the people are meeting the kingdom <laughs> with doubt. There's no quick off button either. <laughs> 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 Sorry. 
Sadly, the people are meeting the kingdom with doubt and with a lukewarm reception. Just look at me, not at the screens. The people lacked urgency or interest. Instead of forcefully seizing the kingdom of God, there was apathy. Yeah, you can just turn it off. I think as Jesus continues, it becomes a bit clearer. He says this in verse 16 after what I read. To what can I compare this generation? It's like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn them. Wake up, Jesus is saying. It's like you're just playing a game, right? The kingdom of God is advancing and you're playing a game. You're missing all that I'm trying to do. You, you don't understand what I'm saying because the kingdom of God's doing this stuff and what are you doing? You're like children in the street. Do you understand what's happening around us? So that's from the kingdom of God, and now I want to look at the kingdom of Israel. Yes, this is backwards. <laughs> Starting the New Testament, going to the Old. Being in the kingdom of God is being in some form of struggle. This is why it's not a kingdom in conflict, it's a kingdom conflict. I dropped the preposition because I think that's the heart of what I want us to understand, that the kingdom is struggle in some sense. There, there is this nature of this fallen world and a people who understand that there's a better way. So that whenever we recognize that there's racial tensions in our country, when we see that, that there's things that have been put in place to oppress the poor, our souls should not rejoice in that. Our souls should be crying out saying, this is not right. I, I, I can't even deal with this tension that I feel right now because I know that we're better than this. Are we not? God made me to be better than this, did he not? Why is there a divide that we are acknowledging between country borders where we think that's the most important distinction? How can we expect that, that people who speak a different language than me are somehow not my brother or sister and, and that I'm supposed to trust those in, in power when the kingdom of God has come to raise the lowest and the least among these? We're sojourners here. We can't and we shouldn't be at peace here. Now, I'm not preaching that we need to be downhearted and, and sad the whole time. I'm not saying that this is a, a hard world and as long as there's just one sinner, then we can't rest. I'm also not, not saying that. But that's, again, that's another sermon that I'm not preaching today. Because the thing is, right, how do we do this? How do we live in a world that's torn apart? In a place where we can experience the fullness of God and have joy and peace and move towards that what do we do well we can't sit back and just wait for it to happen we, we can't just accept things around us as the status quo and say well that's how it's always been you know well, who, who am i to question the system how, how can i deal with it i mean that's just the way that it is because the kingdom of god the kingdom of israel is defined by struggle literally <laughs> and by that i mean literally in the name israel israel means god struggler <laughs> do you know that that's what it means. They're the people who struggle with God. How can we see the beauty and hope and love in the kingdom of God and yet be in a broken place with broken people? It is a struggle. But what we have to do is we have to grab hold of the goodness and we don't let it get wrestled away from us. Genesis is really the, the story of a nation finding itself, the, the birth of a nation, the birth of a people, God's people. That's what Genesis is telling us about. It finds itself not through their glory and greatness. It's not defining the, the people of Israel by their land boundaries or the, the laws of the land that, that govern them. That's not the identity that they're defining. Now, those are parts of this. 
but it finds itself consistently and persistently through their struggles. And that's what we see time and time again through the fall, through the, the flood, through the, the rise of people, through going into the promised land and seizing it, through the exile. We see the people of God through their struggles. And we see the faithfulness of God where? Through their struggles. We can wrestle out of animosity. We can wrestle out of anger or frustration or fear. I don't wrestle with my daughter Ava that way. And we wrestle. She's a wrestler. I wrestle with her in, in a way that, that's, that's playful, that's fun, but that's, that's building her strength or her confidence and that, that maybe there, there's a, a door or something. And, and it, it's, it's a game in some ways, but yet it's still a physical match. Genesis 32 is really weird, all right? Genesis 32 is where we have Jacob wrestling with God. And just to give you a little bit of background before we get into that part of this itself, Jacob is, is about to go back and see his, his twin brother Esau. They were not on the best terms. Jacob is a jerk. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a better biblical way of saying that. He's a deceiver, he's a thief, and he's a trickster. And, and everything that he does has kind of been, how can I get the most for myself? He, he's lived a very selfish life. And when things got bad, what do you do? You run away. So that's what he did. He ran away. And, and this was expected. And yet in the midst of this, God chooses him. Let me tell you, I struggle with this because I know a lot of good, God-loving people who struggle and who want more of God. And then I look at Jacob and it's like, and you choose him? <laughs> it, it feels almost like an, an, an insult because where was his, his love of the law? Where was his love of his family? Where was his respectable moral nature? He didn't really have much of one. And God chose him and called him. So, Verse 22 in Genesis 32, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. When he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. He sent his possessions aside, by the way, to try to bribe his brother to not kill him. That, that's how great things are going in this family right now. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. He was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. What a weird passage. You're, you're, you're reading stuff, you're going along with it, and all of a sudden you've got somebody that shows up in the middle of the night to wrestle Jacob, he can't overpower him. He can't overpower God. Like, what is happening here? And then he gets up in the morning and says, God, bless me. And he's like, okay, I'll bless you and change your name. And then I'm going to touch your hip. And then, then we move on. And then you got this whole thing about food again. What has happened? It so calmly talks about it. Like, this is something that happens, you know, in the middle of the night when you start wrestling with some guy randomly after you sent all your possessions over to bribe your brother. This doesn't seem like a villain fight, right? 
Like whenever you actually have a guy who really wants to, to defeat you. Like a, your, your enemy shows up, he's trying to, to rob you. Well, first off, Jacob didn't have anything to rob, but, but it, it's not that sort of fight. Because what you could see at the end of it was all this guy had to do was touch his hip. <laughs> and also I wonder, how were they wrestling with him not touching him through this whole time, right? You can tell that he was kind of not showing who he was, right? There was almost an invitation to struggle, which is not the way we want this to go. And it's all night. Couldn't you do it for like an hour and then give him a break or something? But all night, it was a struggle. And at the end of it, just a simple touch. Jacob was undone. That really tells you what he was up against. But it tells you something about God himself that chose this, that, that looked for this man by himself, stripped of his possessions, stripped of his family, alone by himself, afraid, crying out to God, and he struggles with him. The answer to his prayer was a struggle. I get that in the parting moment. I won't let you go until unless you bless me. You know, blessing is a really funny thing in the Old Testament. It's a very powerful thing. It's not just a, a nicety. It's not just saying, oh, God bless you. Blessing meant something. It really meant something. And in, in Hebrews 7, 7, it says, without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. All right? Without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That means Jacob acknowledged, I won't let you go unless you bless me. You've got something I want. You, you have power. You, you're something that I am not. You're greater than me, and I need your blessing. And I think that is the heart of why Jacob was struggling. He saw something in this man. He, he saw something that he knew. I need that. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I've been struggling on my own. I've been struggling trying to find my own way. I've been struggling trying to find money. I've been struggling trying to find family. I've been struggling trying to find love. Do you see how Jacob went through all that? He struggled trying to find a wife. He struggled trying to, to, to make peace with his family. He struggled trying to just finally get some, some peace with his day and, and his family. He couldn't find it. He couldn't get it. Then he sees this man in the middle of the night, and he says, okay, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. I finally have in my vision something something worth fighting for, something that's the answer to what I've been concerned with. It's not that God was unable to defeat Jacob. God wasn't trying to escape. But Jacob was so relentless in recognizing there's something here that I need. Jacob was relentless when he recognized there's something here that he needs. God's people are called Israel, those who wrestle with God. They're not called the chosen ones. They're not called those who knew it all. <laughs> They're not called the best people ever. <laughs> Rabbi Joseph Toluskin, he's a Jewish scholar, he writes, it's no small matter that Israel, the name for both the Jewish people and the modern Jewish state, implies neither submission to God nor pure faith, but means wrestling with God. Their name does not mean submission to God or pure faith, but it means wrestling with God. That's the basis of the nation and the people of Israel that we are grafted into, that the kingdom of God came to fulfill and to satisfy. So what's the effect of this wrestling match on Jacob? It's not just a, a name change. Let's, let's rewind this a little bit in Genesis 32, starting in verse 9. Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who say to me, 
Go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also my mothers with their children. But you've said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of sea, which cannot be counted. This was his prayer. I... I had nothing. You've given me something. I have hope. You've given me a promise. I need to connect these dots. Help me. You told me to go. I'm going to go out of faithful obedience, but it doesn't seem good. My brother wants to kill me. I'm trying to be faithful. What am I supposed to do? Help me, God. This was his prayer. But notice, O God of my father Abraham, notice God of my father Isaac. In Genesis 33, after this, after Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Sheshem in Canaan and camped within inside the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Sheshem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel. He bought for the first time a part of the promised land, what God had promised him, and he called it God is the God of Israel. Do you see the big difference? God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. <laughs> and then he sets up an altar and he says, God is the God of Israel, my new name. He's no longer the God of those guys that, that I knew before. He's no longer the God of my church or, or of my people. He's my God. And he gave me a new identity. And I'm going to set it up an altar. And I'm going to remember that because I saw something of him and I would not let it go. He's in the land. He bought a part of the promised land, and God is his God finally. There's a common thread throughout these passages that you see in all the Old Testament that we, we list the patriarchs, you know, God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. But we only see that he becomes personal here after the struggle. Israel knows this is my God. Job 42.5. So beautiful for this. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's what he was saying. I, I knew of you, and I heard your voice. I, I knew you were calling me to do things, and I believed you, but now I've seen you. <laughs> it, it, it's not an idea anymore. It's not a theology anymore. It's not, it's not something I want to just go through the practice and the motions of. Now it's me. <laughs> it's my struggle. This is why we struggle. This is why we struggle. It's not to get a better understanding, okay? The Christian struggle is not to get a better understanding. The Christian struggle is not to resolve our doubts or our questions. It's not to bring ourselves into submission or, or to obey. When we say, I was wrestling with God, that's often what we mean. It's Christian speak for like, oh, I, there's a question I don't know, <laughs> right? And we've retreated once again to this understanding that the pulpit is central and that what I understand in my mind is the most important thing. That's not what Jacob was wrestling with. When we wrestle with God, it's to make him our own, to find our place, to, to know that he is my God, that he can set up an altar and worship him because his promises are for me and his goodness is for me. It's because God is a blessing for you that you know you cannot let go of that I've seen something in him that I've recognized. I'm like, 
that's what I've always been longing for. That's what I've always wanted. And I will not let go of you until it's a part of my life, until it defines me, until it makes me, until that is, is something that I can say, that is who I am now. God is a God of blessing for you. Look, Jesus is saying, how in the face of the kingdom, these people refuse to be denied in Matthew 11. The kingdom's forcefully coming, and people are saying, I'm getting on board with that. This is the forceful response I'm looking for, but I can't find in Israel. The kingdom is forcefully coming, and the forceful, like Jacob, forcefully sees it. Jacob was saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's beyond tenacity. It's the kingdom struggle. It's recognizing the goodness of the land and saying, I will not let go of this. You cannot remove this from me. It's seeing that there's a treasure in a field and you sell everything you have to buy that field because you know you have to have that treasure. It's seeing the pearl of great price, selling everything you have, saying, I have to get that pearl. It's understanding that God is so good that no matter if it costs you fame or fortune or whatever else, you say, I have to be close to God. Nothing else actually matters. And from that, we'll see where we go. But all that matters is that I know who I am because of who my creator tells me, that there's blessing for me in the land of the living. So the conclusion of the matter, if I've lost you along the way, if the Greek was not interesting to you whatsoever, hear this. We frame our understanding of struggle, church, and our experience follows. I think this is very important for us. We frame our understanding of a, of a struggle and our experience falls. What I mean is I struggle with sin. Guess where I focus? Trying to not sin. I struggle with scripture because I can't understand. So where does my focus go? Well, I've got to understand things better. We frame our conflict and we find that we're very good at finding fights. We're very good at finding those differences and zeroing in on them and picking those fights often within the church itself, often with each other, often with family. We look for those fights, and you'll find those fights. So we frame our struggle, we frame these things, and we can find them without doubt. So if we struggle with sin, we struggle with doubt, we struggle with fear, struggle with scripture, struggling with ourselves. But when we frame our God struggles as understanding or obedience, we're going to find those conflicts as well. And we expect it to have. We draw those battle lines and we fight it out. So it's not just the conclusion of the matter, but it's the invitation of this matter. Jesus was inviting us to forcefully seize this, to lay hold upon this, to wrestle with him until it becomes a part of who we are. Because we'd lost our way. Because we've grabbed onto so many other things. And if he has to wrench it from our hand and to, and to have this wrestling match with he's willing to go the, the, the 10 rounds with us. He's willing to work this out with us. Are we willing to work this out with him? Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This is our, this is our savior? This is, this is who we love who goes for the lost and the least? I've been preaching about this whole thing. Wait a minute. So there's this woman crying out to him. He doesn't even 
answer a word. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Oh, we struggle with this one. <laughs> yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. He invited her to struggle. <laughs> you know, it, it's a hard passage for us. But what he saw in her, what, what she evidenced, he, his timeline was all messed up because Paul was the one who was going to go to the Gentiles. Like, all this stuff is, is, is kind of there, but this is the thing, right? She would not let go. She would not let go. She saw Jesus. She knew who he was. She knew what he could do. She said, I'm not leaving here until you bless me. <laughs> I'm not letting go of this until you heal my daughter, until you deliver my daughter. Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town where there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, there was a woman in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, but because this woman keeps bothering me, <laughs> I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. I actually, I, I do wish the side was up to there. There's this, I don't know who did, there's like a, a, a play somebody did where you've got the, the judge and the widow, widow. The judge looks so annoyed at this person. <laughs> it's, it's a great look. But that idea, I need justice. I'm not going until I get it. I need blessing. I'm not going until I get it. May that typify the church. We don't make beds with evil. That we don't, we don't make uh, a, a compromise with things that, that weaken our witness or our testimony. That we don't say, yeah, but you know, that was then and this is now. No, when we have seen God, when we know his glory, when we know his blessing, may we hold on to it with all that we've got, even wrestling through the night. I, I, it's summer, so you've got to get at least one ocean illustration. Battling the surf is a battle, right? I don't know who—I who I think my family makes fun of me because when we go to the ocean, I just go out and go out and go. The waves push me, and I go back out. They ride them in, go back out. And those waves can be brutal. I mean, they bash against you. And, you know, and, and I, th I think as I'm getting older and a little bit weaker, not in my prime as much, they take a lot out of me. They wear me down. But I do it. I do it because I love riding them in. There's joy I find in, 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 in riding these waves in, especially when my, my kids are with me. You know, there's, there's so much enjoyment to be had there that it, the struggle of it, the, the pressing into it, I'm going to do it. If we go to the ocean, I'm not going to sit on the, on, the, on the beach building sandcastles. No offense to those of you who do that. I'm going to be battling that surf and riding that in, getting that ride, having that enjoyment with it. There's something about the ocean. Something I'm not going to let go of, even in the midst of a struggle for it. Here's the question for you. What do you know of Christ? What do you know of the kingdom of God that's worth everything? That you'd sell everything to get. That you could not pry out of your hands if you laid hold of it. Hopefully you know what that is. If you don't, Come and taste and see. 
It's not us. It's not, it's not the pulpit. It's not the answers that we have for you. But there's something in the kingdom of God that God has a blessing for you. I believe this. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Open your heart. One of the ways that I want to do that, actually, um, Alan passed me a, a card earlier saying that he's going to offer prophetic ministry after service for those who are looking for God to speak something personal to them today. Do you know what it is? Often we can't bring ourselves to engage enough because we just don't know if it's worth it. I mean, so many times I've offered great sermons not saying that this was. <laughs> and people just don't want to move. You don't want to do anything about it. What is it that the Lord is calling to you? What is it that he's put in before you that, that you know I need this? Like, God, if I knew I could be healed of this, I'm not going to leave until I get it. Long-term suffering. Justice. Peace. Cure to mental illnesses. What is the thing that if you knew you could lay hold of it here this morning, you would just grab onto it with all you've got. Do you believe that's for you in the land of the living? And we can't make that happen, because again, it's not about us. But we can come before the Father, and I absolutely believe in His power and His authority here today, this morning, to make this happen. So that's my invitation to you. Worship team's going to come up. We're going to worship. Because in worship, so many things happen. In worship, we get to see, we get to practice, we get to understand. Things are lined up in worship is the way that I've been saying it, right? In worship, things just kind of make sense. I can see the glory of God, I can see the fallen nature that I have, and it just kind of lines up. So this is the context for, the, for doing ministry. But in this ministry time, we want to be persistent and consistent. So those things that are on your heart, as soon as I said that, I hope something came to your mind, that this is what I really want from the Lord. This is what I've always wanted from the Lord. Th this, this is my heartbeat. This is my passion. This is that thing. What do I even do about it? Well, let's wrestle. Let's not let go of what the Lord's called us to. So Lord, thank you that you are such a loving God. You're such a loving God that you will wrestle with us through the night. Thank you that you are a God that will change our names. And Father, I know that you're looking. You're looking for those who will lay hold of this. You're looking for those who will not relent. And Father, we've been weak. I've been weak. We've let go when things have gotten tough. We've let go when we've had doubt. We've chosen struggles and, and conflicts of this world rather than, than pressing in deep with you. But we're coming home, Father. We're coming into this land of the living. We say yes to you. We say yes to you. Come, Holy Spirit.